You know, the joke around the office is, is that uh, in July, usually is the time they start hearing Christmas carols that come out of, of my office. And, and I see the people passing by with that, ha, 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 pastor, it's 90 degrees outside. This is no time for Christmas music. And, and I just sing at the top of my lungs. Christmas is such an amazing time of year. You know, it can be mired down in all of the stuff, like I gotta buy this, or I gotta buy that, or I gotta go here, I gotta go to that party, I gotta do this thing. Or it can be the central focus and the culmination of a whole year where you got to serve him, you got to be near him, you got to be blessed by him, and you recognize when it all began. You know, there's no uh, uh, other time when you get to sing these great Christmas, what I call them Christmas hymns. What an amazing thing to be able to sing those songs of old and just sense and feel. How many of y'all, when you were in elementary school, this going back a few years, that, did you ever go Christmas caroling in the neighborhood around your elementary school? Anybody? Okay, a few of you, all right. So that was good, and uh, uh, I'll never forget in fifth grade, we were singing through our neighborhood. Snowflakes were flying like crazy. I had my special boots on. That was two uh, bread wrappers over my socks, and then my tennis shoes were on. I know you think that's not true, but it's true. And uh, my gloves were two tube socks on my hands. But uh, I sang with everything within me in that time of walking through our neighborhood. And there was just something, not even knowing the magnitude of, because of, at those times we actually sang the Jesus songs in our Christmas caroling times in school. But there's just something that happens in this Christmas season. There's just something that's, uh, I, I don't want to use magical, but it's amazing in this time of year. As a matter of fact, when we look to describe who Jesus Christ is, it's actually, uh, it's devoid of adjectives. It's devoid of description because there's something so amazingly beautiful about who he is and how he came to earth and what he did for all of us that uh, sometimes it's hard to describe. So today I wanna talk to you uh, in our fourth Sunday of Advent We've had our, our uh, message on hope, we've had our message on joy, we've had our message on peace, but we can only have hope, joy, and peace because of one reason, and that's Jesus Christ, because he is amazing. And he provides so much for us that it's hard to fathom sometimes the, the amount of things that God brings into our life on a daily basis for everything that our life holds true. And the true story of, of Christmas is really this. It's about Jesus Christ, God's gift to mankind. It's amazing when you hear different people describe uh, who he would be and uh, what was to come and, and the magnitude of who he would be. And we know the prophet said this. The prophet Isaiah said this in, in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this the next thing that we see not just a prophet but an angel proclaims this and in, in Luke and behold you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1, 31 through 35. And God himself said this, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. And so we see that uh, in Luke chapter 22, go back to that uh, scripture there, um, uh, Judy, the one that I skipped ahead and didn't read. So look at Luke 3.22 again. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. We see what a prophet said. We see what an angel said. We see what God himself said. But sometimes I think we need to go to the source and see what Jesus himself said. Jesus said a lot of things about who he was and what his purpose and his mission was. We see in the Gospel of John that there are seven significant moments where Jesus reveals a part of his character using the phrase that begins, I am. And Jesus uses the phrase, I am, and then it begins a teaching on exactly who he is. This phrase is important because it's the one that God used to identify himself to Moses. And the Jews recognized it as a name for God. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this to the people of Israel, the I am has sent me to you, Exodus 3.14. This name for God means that God is the existing one. He had no beginning or end, he is. He is totally self-sufficient. His existence is not dependent upon anyone or anything, emphasizing his divinity and holiness. The phrase, I am, usually necessitates something following afterwards, like I am love, or I am peace, or I am hope, or I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But in this instance, God didn't give anything afterwards, nor does he need to define himself any further. He says, I am the I am. Yet, you could fill in the blank for all of the attributes of who God is if you said, we know God as the I am and all the things that he is and all the things that he can do. And so we see in the Gospel of John that Jesus uses that phrase seven different times to uh, tell people about the magnitude of who he is. I'm going to focus on three of these 
uh, 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 I am's exclusively, but I want to just touch briefly upon the other four. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 10, and let's begin there. Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to be together, to worship Jesus Christ, to acknowledge uh, the magnitude of who your son is. And Father, today, I pray that as we open your word, that there would come an excitement in people's hearts to see Jesus Christ, the I am, as the one who is able, the one who is willing, the one who is determined to bring all men unto himself. And Father, today, as we read about these I am's, I pray, God, that they would put something in our hearts and lives that would give us a spark to continue to move forward in our celebration of our Christmas season. And so, Father, today, we just give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at uh, John chapter 10, verse 7. Here's one of the things that Jesus said. Jesus went over it again. I speak to you eternal truth. I am the gate or the door for the flock. And all those who broke in before me are thieves who came to steal. But the sheep never listened to them. I am the gateway. I am the door to enter through me is to experience, listen to this, experience life, to experience freedom, and to experience satisfaction. What an amazing threesome of what we can expect when the one who stands at the door and knocks, when we open our lives to him, there's something unbelievable that begins to occur. I know that many of you were probably like me. When I first opened the door to Jesus for, for the time that was going to, to stick with me through to where I am today, there was just something different about what, the way I felt and who I was and the way I saw life and, and all of those different things. And that is because I entered into the door. I entered into what he had to offer us. How many of you know when you go to some place like Williamsburg, they have the governor's mansion there. And when you look at the outside of the governor's mansion, you can see this old colonial feel. You just get a, a, a special feeling for the special moment of being in Williamsburg. But when you open the doors to the governor's mansion and go in and see how it is arrayed and adorned, there's like uh, massive amounts of swords that are on the walls. There's uh, long rifles that are, are displayed. And, and in every place you go into, there's just something incredible that you say, wow, that's, that's awesome. You go into the next room and you say, oh man, that's even better than the last room. And that's what Jesus is like. When we open the door to him, when we enter into his gateway, we experience life and freedom and satisfaction. The next I am that I just want to briefly touch on as I continue to read in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, the word goes on to say, I am, and then he says, the good shepherd who lays down my life as a sacrifice for the sheep. 
But the worker who serves only for wages is not a real uh, shepherd. Because he has no heart for the sheep, he will, uh, he will run away and abandon them when he sees the wolf coming. And then the wolf mauls the sheep and drags them off and scatters them. You see, Jesus did not come to earth as a hireling. Jesus did not come to earth like for the purpose that many people thought he was to set up a kingdom for himself. No, he came to earth to show the world what the king was like, what God the Father was like, who he was and what he was like. And it's amazing when he says that he is the good shepherd. It, it, it's interesting to see that even for those who would reject him, he's the good shepherd, good shepherd in waiting for them. He never leaves or forsakes us. A good shepherd is always standing with his sheep, working to move them into the place where they have everything that they need. The third I am that I want to just briefly touch on comes in John chapter 11, begins in, beginning in verse 17. John eleven seventeen. Now when they had arrived, which was only about two miles from Jerusalem, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Many friends of Mary and Martha had come from the region to console them over the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was approaching the village, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Martha said to Jesus, my Lord, if you had only come sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that if you were to ask God for anything, he would do it for you. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise and live. And she replied, yes, I know he will rise with everyone else on resurrection day. Martha, Jesus said, you don't have to wait until then because the next I am, he says, I am the resurrection and I am life eternal. Anyone who clings to me in faith, even though he dies, will live forever. And the one who lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked her this question. And this is the same question I ask so many people. I say, do you believe in the I am? See, Jesus is saying here, he's showing, not only does he have the, uh, the, all the other powers that he spoke of, but he has the power to bring life even in the midst of death. He was showing us the resurrection power that's going to come through his time on the cross. He is the resurrection and the life. And when he modeled that, uh, we see that Lazarus came back to life. I love that story where Jesus just says, Lazarus, come to life and, and come out of the tomb. And, and Lazarus comes out. But how many of you realize that Lazarus ultimately died? Amen? That's okay, because Jesus Christ, the I am of resurrection life, brings all believers, those who, when he asks, do you believe, and you say yes, then he has made a place for you in heavenly realms. He's made a place for you to live forever, a resurrected body, a, a perfect existence that waits upon us. 
But he demonstrated what this would be through showing that Lazarus, though he was dead, he raised him again. Now, let's go to uh, John chapter 15, and let's look at the fourth I am that I'm just going to briefly speak of today. And uh, personally, it was uh, super hard between this one and the third one, because this means so much to me. And when I first began to read the Gospel of John, because I was blessed when somebody gave me just the Gospel of John on the little thing, and they said, hey man, you ought to just start right here and read this, because if you read the Gospel of John, you're going to get a true feel for exactly how much God loves you, who Jesus is, and that you have great purpose and destiny. And when it came to this part of the Scripture, I was so enamored by what it meant here. It says in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 1 of the Gospel of John, it says, I am a true sprouting vine, and the farmer who tends the, the vine is my father. He cares for the branches connected to me by lifting and propping up the, uh, the fruitless branches and pruning every fruitful branch to yield a greater harvest. The words I have spoken over you have already cleansed you. So you must remain in life union with me, for I remain in a life union with you. For as a branch severed from the vine will not bear fruit, so your life will be fruitless unless you live your life intimately joined to mine. I am the sprouting vine and you are my branches. As you live in union with me, as your sincere fruitfulness will stream from within you. But when you live separated from me, you are powerless. If a person is separated from me, he is discarded. Such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire to be burned. But if you live in life union with me, if my words live powerfully within you, then you can ask whatever you desire and it will be done. Jesus Christ says, I am the true vine. If you understand anything about grafting uh, in fruit trees and that kind of thing, which I'm a total novice at all of these things, but when you graft a branch into a, a tree, then when, when that branch becomes healthy, out of that branch comes multitudes of fruit. When we take our lives and put it inside of who Jesus Christ, the one who says, I am the true vine, then we begin to bear fruit in the kingdom. In other words, when we become connected with him intimately, when his words begin to uh, uh, speak life to us, when we get to the place to where our faith grows. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. How many of you would say today, Lord, give me more faith? Amen. I would say that. Wherever you are right now, you're going to need more faith for the place that God is ultimately going to take you to. Amen. That's exciting to know that we are, when we are engrafted into Jesus Christ, the true vine, 
that he produces in us everything that our lives were designed to have take place in us. I am the true vine. And Jesus is not kidding when he says that. He is definitely the true vine. Now I want to get into the three things that I want to spend a little bit more time on here. And if you would, turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. There's some truths in the Word that have to be held on to sincerely and deeply, no matter who says anything else around us. There's some truths in the Word about Jesus that even if you don't fully comprehend or understand them at the time, when you embrace them and, and apply them to your lives, in through the journey, God will begin to release to you all of the truth, all of the knowledge, all of the empowerment that you're going to need to live your life in the kingdom of God. The first thing that I want to talk on today, uh, that I want to spend some significant time in the realm of Jesus calling himself the I Am, He's calling himself the I am because that's how God identified himself to Moses. And so he's basically saying, I am God. I am the, uh, the same as the Father. I am the same as the Holy Spirit. And so he's acknowledging that same thing of Exodus 3, 14, in the way God identified himself, Jesus is now identifying himself in that same way. In John 6, 35, Jesus says this. He said, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Come every day to me and you will never hunger. Believe in me and you will never be thirsty. Why is Jesus using this analogy at this time in John chapter 6 when he says to them, I am the bread of life? Well, when we look back to the beginning of John chapter 6, we see the time in which Jesus fed the multitudes of people with loaves and fishes. And so he was drawing a correlation for them to see that when he talks about being the bread of life, he's directly connecting that to there was something that these folks needed at the beginning of chapter 6. He supplied it for them, and it was an intimate and integral thing that they had to have at that time. Isn't it interesting that his, his disciples looked at the size of the crowd, sized up that crowd for themselves, saw the circumstances of it becoming dark, knowing that these people had been there the entire day and that they were hungry, but yet in what they saw in their hands, they tangibly knew that they could not provide for them the something that their body needed. And isn't it interesting that Jesus began to teach them something about who he was? See, Jesus knows your physical needs. He knows your emotional needs. He knows your spiritual needs. He knows your physical needs. There's everything about him. When he says, I am the bread of life, everything that is contained within him, when you take him upon yourself, 
He will be able to provide everything that you need. When we look at John chapter 41, moving on, he's beginning to explain a little more about this being, the, the, him being the bread of life. When Jesus, or when the Jews who were hostile to Jesus heard him say, I am the bread that came down from heaven, they immediately began to complain. How can he say these things about himself? We know him and we know his parents. How dare he say, I have come down from heaven? Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus responded and said, stop grumbling. The only way people come to me is by the Father who sent me. He pulls on their hearts to embrace me. And those who are drawn to me, I will certainly raise them up in the last day. Jesus continued, it has been written by the prophets that they uh, will all be taught by God himself. If you are really listening to the Father and learning directly from him, you will come to me, for I am the only one who has come from the Father's side, and I have seen the Father. And in verse uh, 47, he says, I speak to you the living truth. In other words, I'm speaking to you a truth that is alive and well. It's a truth for this moment. It's a truth for this hour. It's a truth that contains something in there that's gonna bring life to you. Remember, we, we looked at before, he's, he's the I am that brings life to us, not just eternal, but life for the living. I speak to you living truth. When you connect with the bread of life and embrace that living truth, there's something that transforms inside of your heart that enables you to live in a position and in a place that you could not live before you embrace the I am, the bread of life. I speak to you living truth. My word is alive and well. Unite your heart to me and believe and you will experience eternal life. I am the true bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert and died. Listen to the correlation here. But standing here before you is the true bread that comes out of heaven. And when you eat this bread, you will never die. I alone, listen to his statement here. I alone am this living bread that has come to you from heaven. Eat this bread and you will live forever. The living bread I give you is my body, which I will offer as a sacrifice so that all may live. Jesus is beginning to speak something here to them that is transitional in their thought process. He is now outlying himself as the living bread, the, the, the sacrificial bread, the, the bread that when you embrace it will bring you to a place that you will have eternal life. It's interesting that when you talk about the thought of bread for the physical, so many of us, we don't think of bread as that universal thing that is what's going to sustain our hunger. But I found out when I began to travel that bread is one of the most sustaining forces. Bread and rice are the two sustaining forces that keep most of the world outside the developed nations alive. 
we were doing one of our first leadership conferences in, in Burundi. And uh, the, at nine o'clock, we had about 150 people gather. And uh, it was the most lame nine to 9.30 hour that I, I could ever begin or to, to, to fathom in my mind. And I began to think to myself, what is it about these folks that they seem so lethargic, they seem so disinterested? And I pulled my buddy aside and I said those things to him. I said, hey, are these people okay? Or did you force them to come here? Did you promise them a dollar to, to come here and to, to, to be with us? And he said, no, daddy. He said, these people are hungry. And it's hard for them to sit and listen when what they hear is the growling of their bellies in their ears. And I said to myself, wow, I need to get some living bread. I need to get some physical bread, something. And one of the guys in our team is a baker, and I commissioned him to go get 150 loaves of bread and 150 bottles of soda, and we took a little bit of break, and then he brought them in from his bakery, and we handed out a loaf and a bottle to each person. They broke that bread and ate it like there was no tomorrow, a beautiful round loaf of bread. Uh, we would be counting calories when we looked at that much bread. We would be saying, oh, I only want to eat half of that because there's no protein in here, and you know uh, that's so many calories, and I don't want to put any extra weight on. And they looked at that bread as life. They looked at that bread as this could be my only meal for the day. And so when you think about the way Jesus is talking about him being the bread of life and showing people that were hungry at the beginning of this chapter that he could feed them in the physical sense, now he's transitioning this into the place where he's going to transition it into a spiritual sense. And that's exactly what we did. And after the guys ate their bread, drank their soda. We had a time of worship and the place erupted. We had another teaching and a great Q&A and a great time of ministry. And I learned a valuable lesson. Before you're going to touch anybody spiritually, you better touch them physically because that might be their greatest need at that moment. And Jesus said in 51, the living bread I give you is my body which I offer as a sacrifice to all who may live. Jesus says, just as you cannot do without bread in the physical on a daily basis, the same is true of me. So often we don't forget breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but we forget Jesus in the midst of our day. And you have a spirit that is longing for some sort of connection to the spiritual bread of life in the same way that it's wanting to connect with the Cheesecake Factory or Brio or wherever you like to go, Rusty Bucket, where your, your body is physically brought into a place where you're satisfied by what kind of food you eat. Your spirit is looking for that same connection into the I am, the I am the bread of life. Jesus is the sustainer of life. And this is what he's saying when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the one who sustains you 
through all of the circumstances and challenges and battles in the same way that bread satisfies the hunger that you have physically and gives you energy to do what you need to do. I am the bread that satisfies you spiritually as well. And as your spirit becomes satisfied, then it wants to grow. It wants to to achieve. It wants to do things for the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying to these people, I am the sustainer of your life. I am the one that when you embrace me, that you can know that in all situations and circumstances of your life, that he will keep us. One of my favorite teachers of the word, Graham Cook, says this. He says, every challenge that we face in life is an opportunity for Jesus to be something for you that he couldn't be in any other circumstance. When you are heavenly minded, your problems are avenues to what? Encounter God. Isn't that what we talked about when the angel came to earth and they had an encounter? And what happened when they had that encounter? They said, we've got to move quickly to see this which the angel talked about. You see, when heaven comes to earth, heaven comes to you. When the bread of life touches you in any way, shape or form, there's a hunger that happens because of that encounter. There's something that transforms inside of you when the sustainer of life sustains you through a circumstance that no one else could sustain you through. And God comes and does for you what only he can do. It makes the bread of life, the I am the bread. It makes it come alive to you in the same way. That bread satisfies our hunger is the same way that the bread of life sustains us and moves us through encountering him to the next place that God has in store for us. We see this very, very clearly in the testimonies of those who have lived through imprisonments in our lifetime. I got to meet uh, Prem Pradam and uh, the one who led countless uh, amounts of people uh, to Jesus inside a Nepali prison cell. I told you the story of being thrown into the morgue where dead people's bodily fluids were dripping down upon him. And in that exact encounter, Jesus, the sustainer, opened the door and sustained life for the guard, eternal life. The guard was led to Christ through that encounter. Jesus is the sustainer of life. When we look at Joseph in Genesis, we see that although Joseph had a dream that uh, he was going to be second in charge of the entire nation, uh, Joseph didn't rise to that position until all kinds of crazy came along his way. Anybody experiencing any crazy lately? Amen. Hallelujah. I like how nobody's raising their hand because nobody even wants, you don't even want anybody to know what crazy you're dealing with. But in the midst of those times and those storms, that's where God, the sustainer, comes alive. It wasn't that God was looking to pull Joseph out of his situation either. I mean, the the time that he told the the baker and, and the other cat about what their dreams were, it was two years 
until God came back for him and Joseph got to interpret the dream for the king. And it wasn't until after all those experiences that God uh, and Jesus Christ, the I am, sustained him to the place of his original destiny that God's dream came to him over and he became second in charge of an entire nation. When God the sustainer comes, he's sustaining not just your life, but he's sustaining your mission for what's next for you. In the midst of all of those times when, when, Jesus, or when Joseph could hear the voice of God, God had spoke to him through that interpretation that a great famine was going to come economically upon the earth. And God, the sustainer, gave Joseph, the one who was in prison, the purpose and direction for what was going to sustain them through seven years of famine. The wisdom came to him in the midst of that trying circumstance. Don't let your circumstance rule your destiny. Don't let your fate be in the hands of, a, of, of something that, that wants to hold you back. Understand the sustainer wants to move you to the place of your destiny so everyone around you's lives can be transformed. The Apostle Paul used his imprisonment to write critical, lifelong biblical epistles and get to the place he finally got to of sharing the gospel with the highest officials of the land at that time. Jesus Christ, the bread of life, is your sustainer and he wants to move you to the place of your destiny. The Bible says this. It says in Matthew 4, 4, it says, He answered, the scriptures say, bread alone will not satisfy, but true life is found in every word that consistently goes forth from God's mouth. Hebrews 4, 13, 11 through 13 says, then we must be eager to experience this faith rest life so that no one falls short by following the same pattern of doubt or unbelief. For we have the living word of God. How many of you realize when we're talking about bread that there's an active ingredient that makes the bread what it is? Would you agree with me? How many of you know that that ingredient is yeast? If you have no bread, then you have one of them flat things called, you have tortillas. Uh, it, but when you have yeast inside of the flour, the flour begins to rise. We have to understand that Jesus Christ is the active ingredient inside the life of a believer that allows them to rise in the midst of our circumstance, to rise in the midst of our challenges, because that's who he is. He is the sustainer of life. For we have the living word of God, which is full of energy, like a two-mouthed sword. It will even penetrate to the very core of our being, where soul and spirit, bone and marrow meet. It interrupts and reveals the true thoughts and secrets and motives of our heart. There is not one person who can hide their thoughts from God, for nothing that we do remains a secret, and nothing created is concealed. But everything is exposed and defenseless before His eyes, to whom we must render an account. I thank God daily 
for his amazing grace, for his unfailing love, and his never-ending care for every moment of my day. I say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jesus says this in uh, verse 12. Then Jesus said, I am light to the world. And those who embrace me will experience, what does he keep, what's the general theme? Life-giving light. Everything about Jesus, I am the bread, I am the door, uh, I am the good shepherd. Everything that he says is when we embrace it, I am the vine. Something becomes enhanced in our life. He, he keeps saying, I am, I am this, I am that, I am this, I am that. And when you see exactly who I am, you will begin to experience life-giving light. And they will never walk in darkness. The Pharisees were immediately offended. Those cats had a problem, didn't they? I mean, this, this thing about Jesus, they're being offended. What were they offended over? Ah, we need to read The Bait of Satan. Great book. Talks about offenses, how you cannot allow yourself to get entangled in them. The Pharisees were immediately offended and said, you're just boasting about yourself. Since we only have your word on this, it makes your testimony invalid. And Jesus responded and said this, Jesus responded, just because I am the one making these claims doesn't mean they're invalid, for I absolutely know who I am. When you look at yourself in the mirror, what do you see? Do you know who you are? This is important to, to understand. See, when Jesus was encountering the attacks of the Pharisees, he could stand strong in the midst of, of what they were trying to bring his life down to because he knew who he was. We need to know who we are. He said, I know absolutely who I am and where I've come from and where I'm going. But you Pharisees, you got no idea about what I'm saying. For you've set yourselves up as judges of others based on an outward appearance. But I certainly never judge anyone in that way. The Bible says when we go back to Jesus saying that he is the light of the world, he knows that he is the light of the world because Genesis 1, 3 through 5 says this. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God divided the good from the bad. God divided the good from the evil. And that's what the light of I am the light does. The light divides those things so that we can clearly see. We don't have to walk into the same places and the same traps that everyone else has to walk into. And God called light day and darkness he called night. So the evening and morning, they were the first day. 
God is always trying to put us into a place that we can clearly see not just who he is, but what he can keep us from. The Bible tells us in John 3, 8, as a matter of fact, when Jesus is talking about who he is, the, the writer of 1 John says, he who, sits, uh, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But for this purpose was the Son of God manifest, that he might destroy the work of the enemy. And that's what light does. Light destroys the darkness. And when we walk in the midst of his light, we walk into a place that we don't have to uh, be consumed in any other way. And so let's look at John chapter 14 now as I uh, wrap this up for us today. John chapter 14 says this. John 14, verse 1. It says, don't worry or surrender to fear, for you've believed in God, now trust and believe in me also. My Father's house has many dwelling places. Listen to this closely. Don't think of this as the last time you were at somebody's funeral that this passage got read. I want you to think about this scripture in the light of who Jesus says he is. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the light. I am the true vine. Everything that is written to this account is to encourage us to not just hold on till we get there, but to have something that gives us life while we are here. You, for you've believed in God, now trust and believe in me also. My father's house has many dwelling places. If it were otherwise, I would tell you plainly, because I go to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come back and take you to myself so that you will be where I am. And you already know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Master, we don't know where you're going. And so how could we know the way there? And then Jesus said this. Jesus, spoke, or Jesus explained, he said, Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes next to the Father except through union with me. To know me is to know the, the Father. And from now on, you will realize that you have seen him and experienced him. Now, this is a critical thing that you need to understand and completely embrace because there is a whole world that is working overtime to, uh, to, to bring uh, to a place of, of non-truth the power of this statement. Oh, why would, why would Jesus be the only way? What about those other religions? Hey, those other religions are, are for the other people that are in those religions, but the reality of religion is a relationship, and there's only one relationship that's going to bring you to a place to where you're going to be able to experience life and life eternally. 
There's only one relationship, and that's with Jesus Christ. And that one relationship opens the door to those seven I am's for you to not just be preparing yourself for a mansion in, 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 in a heavenly realm, but to walk through what God has in store for us here in this world. There is a group, a huge group inside of the church that even brings these statements to a place to where they no longer have the significance and power of what they were intended to have. And I pity the pastors who preach from their pulpits heresies toward the Bible and who Jesus Christ is. Now, you could say, Pastor, isn't that prideful that you would stand up and say Jesus Christ is the only way? It's not pride, it's reality. And there's a reality that happens when you read his word and the I am touches you and the bread of life fills you to that place where he encourages you to walk. There is something in this word that when Jesus Christ becomes to you what he intended for you to have, that you have an encounter that changes you forever. And let me tell you this, until you have an encounter with God, there'll be a hundred people that can talk you out and into something else. An encounter with God cures all of your curiosity for the other stuff and gives you a great hunger for the bread of life, the I am who wants to lead you and hold you. Now, this is not a new thing. There was a group of, of people in the New Testament that were called Judaizers. And they were a faction of Jewish Christians, uh, 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 both uh, they were uh, from the Jews and non-Jews who uh, would regard the Levitical law of the Old Testament as still being binding on all Christians. And they were walking the earth when this was happening uh, in, 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 you know, the, the uh, disciples were preaching the word of God, but there was another faction that was preaching a watered down version of what God entitled for them. And in Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes to them and he says, I'm shocked. Now listen to this. Folks, if, if God's word is, is not alive and well, if God's word is not what it says it is, then, then, I, uh, then call me a liar. He says, I'm shocked over how quickly you have strayed away from the one who called you in the grace of Christ. I'm astounded that you now embrace a what? a distorted gospel. Anyone who is preaching anything other than what's contained in these pages, anyone who wants to assemble a group of people for a psychological self-help session every Sunday morning for a half hour is missing what this Bible contains. The truths within it change all lives for eternity and that's who Jesus is but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel different than the one we preach to you then let them be under God's curse let me make it clear anyone no matter who they are that brings you a different gospel than the gospel that you have received let them be condemned and cursed listen there are going to be challenges that you face in your life. I'm not going to tell you anything any different. 
You are going to have circumstances that you're going to face that you're not going to understand. You're not going to naturally have an answer for. I can't change that that's going to happen to you. But I know this, that there's not one circumstance and situation that you will ever face that you ever have to face alone. And you will not be able to find God in the midst of it. Nothing that you face will be too big for God. Today's Judaizers, they preach tolerance, and they preach a modern theology of social justice, moving people towards a humanistic gospel, a gospel that uh, uh, moves believers away from the truth of the Word of God on the critical social issues of the day. Folks, Everything about God, can I have the worship team come right now, is, is amazing, it's life-giving, and it's sustaining, and you don't need to find any other way. You don't need to find any other person. You don't need to find uh, any, anyone who's going to tickle your ears in any way. Somebody said something that must have been Leslie this morning. She was talking about Jesus, and she said, he's not that baby anymore. And uh, there's a famous pastor, S.M. Lockridge. He was born Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. And he's known for giving his definition of who Christ is. And if you'll bear with me for a moment, I'm going to tell you what he thinks of Jesus himself. Well, he is... Uh, he is, my king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's the king of Jews. That's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he is uh, the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? David said the heavens declared the only one of whom there are no reasons and no measures that can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of the shore of his supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He is honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Uh, he's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the grandest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of historic theology. He's the carnal necessity of spiritual religion. Now that's my king. 
He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of your needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and he saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all of his people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leper. He forgives the sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. And that's my king. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me? Do you know him? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of legislatures. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of peace. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And that's my my King, hallelujah. Father, today we thank and praise you that Jesus, that you are the I am. You are the one who heals and restores. You are the one that brings life. Father, I pray during this Christmas time that we have an encounter with you, that our family members will encounter you, that those who are lost would have an encounter with you. Draw all men unto yourself like your word says. It's your heart that none should perish. And let this be a time of season where everyone, comes to know who you are, our King, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.